You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hey everybody, Tristra here, your host for today's episode of Music Tectonics, the podcast where we go beneath the surface to understand what's shaking at the intersection of music and tech. Today we've got two really intriguing guests from Immersion Networks, a research-based audio technology company creating new ways for more people to enjoy deeper, more moving listening experiences on the headphones that they already own. I know, crazy concept, eh? All right, so today we have Paul Hubert, who is founder of Immersion Networks and a prolific inventor in the audio world. Paul has tackled everything from how to make mastering work better to how to make satellite radio sound better. Uh, We also have Jim Rondinelli, who has a long list of studio credits and fancy uh, various metal records, you know, the metallic things that you hang on the wall to his name, um, for his work as an engineer and producer. They're here today to share their insights into perceptual audio, and don't worry, we'll talk about what exactly that is in just a second, listening experience, and how music tech can evoke emotion and powerful stories in listeners. So thanks so much for joining me, Paul and Jim. Um, I'm really, really excited to get to talk to both of you today. And um, I know from previous conversations how much interesting stuff you know and have to say about how we perceive sound and how that sound gets translated in our brains to music. So, um, Paul, would you mind kicking us off by telling us a little bit about your really interesting background in audio? Well, sure. Happy to happy to dig in. Um, so I've uh, I'm going to start with today and then work backwards a little bit, which always is a little bit easier. So uh, today we are working on um, uh, cycloacoustic models and very advanced uh, stuff in how we hear sound and how we can create it and um, distribute it through the current ecosystem that's out there. So we don't have to go out and buy a bunch of new hardware. And that's been a big challenge for us. Um, so prior to this project, which we'll always spend a lot of time talking about today, um, I was a founder of a company called Neural Audio, and we did a bunch of signal processing things for audio, trying to make codecs sound better. Also, we came up with a surround sound format that is still the standard for sports broadcast distribution. So we could take 5.1 audio, put it down into a stereo feed that has a lovely watermark inside the audio that helps uh, if you encode it 5.1, it goes down to stereo, comes back out to a decoder where it sees that watermark and expands it back out to a discrete 5.1. So something came up with uh, with a really amazing team at Neural back in the early mid-2000s on there. So um, I sold that company in 2009. Um, and prior to that, I had a very interesting year. I uh, grew up in studios where I did mastering, restoration, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of projects. I did uh, mastering for um, one of the large labels. I did just about every single that came through a label um, in, a, in about a 10-year time period. So. If I was to put my platinum records on the wall and my gold records on the wall, I wouldn't have enough wall space in the house to cover them. So it's kind of crazy on that side. Um, and prior to me getting into audio, um, I was a uh, computer researcher at uh, Apple, where I started uh, very young. Um, I was hired when it was uh, um, when I was a young teen by Steve himself, and uh, that's an interesting story all on its own. <laughs> what we're here to talk about today. <laughs> Save it for our Steve Jobs uh, uh, memory lane episode. But <laughs> Jim, tell me a bit about some of the work you did in um, music as an engineer and producer. 
Hey, Tristra. Thanks for having me. So, uh, let's see. Story of my life can condensed into less than a couple minutes. Um, this is sort of the third stop in my career uh, in music and technology. Uh, first part of my career was spent producing and mixing records, and I was fortunate enough to get to work with a lot of great artists. Uh, Matthew Sweet, Wilco, Weezer, the Jayhawks, Everclear, uh, the Tragically Hip, the Odds, Sloan. Um, you know, fortunate to, you know, to, to get to work with a bunch of great artists. But I started to become concerned when in the late 90s, I could see that the emergence of bandwidth in everybody's home was going to really change the way music was distributed and all media was distributed. And I made a conscious decision to walk away from a pretty solid career at that point uh, to get a better handle on the backbone of digital distribution and how it would play out in media. So first stop was thanks to an introduction from Ted Waite, the founder of Gateway, uh, who is a friend from college, uh, who I'd go on to work for a little bit later. Um, first stop was mp3.com, where I originally started doing business development. Uh, then we IPO'd the company in July of 1999. And, uh, ultimately started working in music licensing at MP3 as MP3 started to engage in a more positive manner with rights holders uh, around the world. From MP3, after a brief stop uh, back in the family office for Ted, who I mentioned earlier, um, looking after music tech investments, I got recruited to run the digital business for Warner Chapel Music Publishing, which was an interesting time because when I was there, 2005 and 2006, the music publishing business wasn't really ready to embrace di digital distribution. Um, it, in fact, it caused them fits. A lot of the older school executives associated digital distribution of music with piracy and the line executives who were in charge of things like royalty accounting and the finance people were all freaked out because instead of dealing with 9.1 cent royalties, they're now dealing with fractions of a penny in royalties and none of the systems were built to account for it. And it created a real problem for those guys. So I helped out sort out some of those problems for them and got them on the path to the digital transformation of their business. But at one point... Uh, I just realized I'd be happier back in the tech world. So that led to a continuation of work licensing music for a bunch of different music services. Um, and ultimately that meant running all things content licensing and reporting for Ardeo, uh, which was a music service that operated in 87 countries before it was sold to Pandora at the end of 2015. Shortly after that, my friend Ed Pearson, who was my general counsel at Warner Chapel Music Publishing, but today it has a great law practice based here in the Pacific Northwest that looks after great artists like Macklemore and Ryan Lewis and The Head and the Heart and you know any number of amazing 
Ben, you know, get Ben from Death Cab, um, any number of great artists out here. Ed met the people from Immersion Networks, immediately made the connection, thought it would be an interesting place. Uh, I met the founders through him. And when Paul Hubert first played the even early stage demos of what became now the Mixcube platform, I, I was just blown away. Uh, blown away to the point that I kind of dropped everything else I was doing. I had a number of consulting clients and got them all situated with other people and moved my family up here to the Pacific Northwest to be a part of the company. And uh, these days, I'm lucky enough to get to you know, do some immersive mixes now and then uh, with artists that I love. But really, the core of my job is to look after the core operation of the business here at Immersion. Excellent. Thanks. It's, uh, those are both really formidable and um, intriguing careers. So uh, I'm excited to hear more about how you're thinking about audio. Um, and specifically, let's talk a bit about this concept of perceptual audio or uh, psychoacoustics. What are these fields? Why do they matter? Like, don't I just hear what I hear, right? Sound is an objective phenomenon. Don't I just like hear stuff and then it's there? It really is about how humans perceive sound, and that's that's all we really want to focus on. You know, we um, there's a lot of companies that spend a lot of time measuring, you know, what signal processing can measure or what a microphone can get. You know, with our background, especially our chief scientist uh, James D. Johnston, we all call, call him JJ. He's really the the key person in all of the the research that we've done with perceptual audio, um, since he's the primary inventor of codex in the field. Um, he did a, just a, you know, a mountain full of research at Bell Labs in his uh, 26 years there about building codex and reducing what actually matters to human hearing and, you know, having that legacy within our team. Um, we went on a different path of what you could throw out in a codex is as to what can you keep inside you know a acoustic experience or uh, the, the way to make something feel that you're present so we focused on really all that matters to human hearing and having the foremost expert in the field you know as our main scientist behind it was really a a wonderful journey can we talk a little bit about some key moments of perception um i there are things we live every day but we don't realize that um, for instance, I remember you bringing up earlier, Paul, was the fact that visual information and audio information are processed through the same channels in the brain. So um, looking at, like, for instance, a red speaker wire will make you associate it with a quote-unquote warmer sound, that kind of interesting thing. So can you um, give us like a, a, a quick overview of the most important moments in perception and how they influence um, our listening experiences? Well, I think, you know, you certainly got got the right point that uh, everything that we do as humans is integrated. The, the most unique thing about, you know, why um, we experience the world different than many other animals or anything is we have incredible sensory integration. And we can't turn it off is one thing, is that, uh, you know, our brain will perceive what we see and what we hear together at the same time and make a, a decision about the world around us. And, you know, obviously smell and taste and touch and all those other things are all at the same time. But in this realm of 
entertainment, we really just think about sight and sound and what those two things mean to each other. Um, in, in our case, as we make spatial audio, things that are around you that give you a sense of you know, near and far and up and down and distance and all of that, you can trick somebody um, you know, by placing something in front of them and if they don't see it, they're going to perceive it as behind them until they get some training that, you know, you kind of got to shut your eyes or, you know, kind of isolate that sense before you can really do that. So there's a, there's a large group of the, the world that, you know, if you play audio that sounds perfectly in front of them, they can't actually hear it. They think it's behind them, even though it's, it's clearly, you know, uh, meant to be in front of them and their brain will, will say, well, I don't see it, so I can't hear it in front of me. It will be behind us. That's called the, the cone of confusion for a lot of, uh, a lot of audio um, teams. And we focus really hard on making sure there's enough cues for somebody to, you know, just initially shut their eyes and they can hear it in front of them. And eventually their brain will connect it that, oh, it, uh, I actually do have sound in front of me that's not um, that's, that's, that's very different than how it sounds when it's behind you. So when you have something that goes around somebody's head, it sounds much duller and darker in the back and brighter in the front. And there's several things that can work in that, in that favor. But uh, initially people have a very difficult time separating what they see and what they hear. Also in listening tests with things, if you actually are clicking on, you know, a, a selection where you control A or B, Actually, you clicking on that forces a preference. There is no way to, um, so you anticipate whatever you're doing, but our hearing loop is reset the minute that you touch something and make a selection. So the only way to really tell the difference between two things is to do a blind listening between an A and a B where, where there's something that randomly picks the two of them, and then you can you can identify this is A or this is B versus someone controlling that. And that's a you know that's a lesson I learned as a mastering engineer many years ago that I would trick myself into thinking that A is you know this A is what I'm working on, so it must be better than B. But the only way to be truly objective about it is to have it random and you identify which one it is. So there's a bunch of things that our brain can't separate, and you know, that's uh, one thing about system integration that we, you know, we have to pay attention to. That is wild. So how do you translate these kind of wild and crazy observations about the incredibly complex human brain and into into a, a, a tech product that could be, you know, that, that's available to consumers? How do you guys go about bridging that gap between um, things people could use and these incredible observations about human perception? Well, the first ingredient is to have a J.J. Johnston around. I mean, J.J. is the world's foremost expert at perceptual audio. And the guy's named in something like 200 plus patents. He's received two lifetime achievement awards for his work in signal processing and at the dawn of digital audio. And, you know, he's gone through decades and decades and decades of research from the very beginning of digital audio and understands human human hearing processes intimately because it's really an art as well as a science, right? There's a lot of creativity involved um, in actually coming up with the techniques uh, that we use to do what we do. So having a JJ and having a Paul helps 
then adding in Paul's experience in signal processing and come up, coming up with real-world solutions for audio that have you know, strong business outcomes helps a lot as well. Um, but at the end of the day, this is all super, super complex math. Um, and it's, we're using processing capabilities that you know, weren't even conceived 30 years ago when the basic math for the codecs that are more popular uh, or most popular for the delivery of music were created. So let me frame this up for you in another way. Um, for the last, since the dawn of digital music, we've been listening to the MP3 file and the AAC file. Both were designed to reduce file sizes so you could put uh, music more easily over a, a digital network or store more audio files on a device. None of them, neither of them were designed to make things sound better or different. And if you go back to, you know, the set, the amount of computer processing horsepower that was available back in the early 90s when JJ published the, the first papers on AAC. I mean, how my iPhone is almost a supercomputer of that era, right? So there are things that we can do in our processes now uh, that those guys couldn't even conceive of then, back then. Um, there's just simply wasn't enough computing horsepower in the world to pull it off. So we've taken years and years and years, decades of, you know, and, you know, the aggregate of tens to hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, learnings from audio research and poured them into a platform. And now we deliver that whole experience uh, via a set of creation tools that are available on the cloud for anybody on any web connected computer to use to create um, three dimensional audio. Uh, the world's changed a lot. Maybe to expand on that point a little bit is we're, we're really borrowing from the future by using so much computation power. And, you know, initially when we were designing this, we were thinking, how are we, you know, we designed it in the labs with no compromises. What's the best thing we could do? And then you always try and figure out, okay, now how we could build this into the market and, and the computation power that was required to it was tremendous. So we thought maybe we have to build a studio product that's got, you know, really very powerful customized hardware that can run on this stuff. But, you know, maybe there's a, maybe a few hundred studios that could afford to purchase it, but, you know, it would be, it would be the most amazing sounding thing ever. You know, it'd be the best mixer or the best tool set. And then um, we, we, we had a couple experts on our team that really understood cloud computing. And we decided to, instead of making expensive hardware for the custom studio, we decided to leverage the power of the cloud and have, you know, ultimately unlimited computer power at our hands. So we didn't have to compromise the sound of what we're building and we could just deliver it to people you know, with the uh, with the web connection. So all that's happening is all the processing's done, and you know we have access to millions of cores of computing power. Um, everybody gets to rent a little bit at a time, but all they have to do is have a clean stream come back to them. Since we can deliver this as two channels of audio, since we we deliver it back as lossless audio, there's really no compromise in the in the production flow. There's a little bit of a delay because of the the internet connection, but it's you know it's it's less than a, you know, a half of a second in, in most cases. And this is kind of the interesting thing, right? Because 
you know, some of the most common questions we get asked uh, are, well, um, how does it play with my current Pro Audio workstation, you know, Pro Tools, Logic, Ableton, whatever. And what people, we have to educate people on is that the things that we're doing in the cloud are not going to be available computationally to any of those platforms for probably 10 to 15 years because processing power just isn't there. We can throw so many cores simultaneously to task in the cloud, and that allows us to do things that are just, you know, inconceivable to anything else. The other thing about this is if you're a recording studio or, or a musician, you know, you want to move into the future, you want to work, move into immersive audio. In other systems, they're asking you to buy all new speakers, redo your control room, make a CapEx investment of tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars for your facility for formats that are still based on crappy compressed audio. I mean, none of the codecs that are used to deliver Atmos or MPEG-H were specifically designed for multi-channel or spatial audio. They are extensions of other pools of IP that were ha happen to be around the facility that these guys are using. So what's the outcome? The outcome is we're trying to tell people that we're creating a new next-gen audio experience and with some of the other platforms in market, they're doing it by a really mediocre compressed audio. That's a shame. Sometimes it can work. A lot of times it doesn't. On top of it, 70% plus of music now is consumed on headphones, in your office, in, your, in the subway, in your car, listening at your home while you're on a device, somebody else is in another room on another device, as opposed to the old big multi-channel stereo speaker uh, idea that people went to years ago. If people are listening on headphones, we should be delivering things to them that are optimized to work in two channels, not 20 channels dumbed down so it fits within a two-channel delivery system and is dumbed down and compressed and has conflicts to it. Um, you should deliver it as a stereo file to their headphones. And if you can do that and deliver three dimensions, you can make an audio experience that's available and accessible to everyone. And to us, that's the point. Accessible to everyone on the hardware that they already own. I don't care if they're listening in the Senegal, where there's maybe only a 3G network that's available in their community, or if they're listening in Helsinki, where there's incredible mobile bandwidth. They should be able to get a great and robust experience. That's what moving technology is about. That's what, it's, what the future is about. And we think we're uniquely positioned to be able to deliver that value proposition to people. That's fantastic. Um, let's jump back to the creator side of things. You were mentioning um, studio work and, and DAWs and all that fun stuff. How do you guys imagine this will change from a creative point of view, the way audio engineers, producers, mastering engineers, um, recording artists work in the studio? Will there be um, new creative possibilities? How do you imagine that? Well, the first thing is on some level, and, and Paul can kind of speak to the origin story of this. But on some level, we want to give the storyteller, whether the storyteller is a songwriter or a filmmaker or a podcaster, a tool to be able to bring the listener into the space and into the performance that the storyteller wants to prescribe for the listener. 
we're not depending on an array of speakers and amplifiers in a room to create a so-called spatial effect. We're delivering a 3D rendering of an environment that was chosen by the storyteller to portray that story. It's almost akin to what happens with computer animation and an actor's performance. An actor may act in front of a green screen entirely disaggregated from the environment that the storyteller wants them in, but the storyteller in Hollywood wants them in front of a waterfall, inside a car, inside a bar, but they're still all in front of a green screen. So we give people the creative ability to do that. Most importantly, we give you the ability to make it sound like you are there at that performance and so it feels very real. It's not just about sound. It's about feeling and conveying emotion. And that's something that we feel that this program and this approach does better than anything else. That's, that's great points, Jim, on, the, on that, that side. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always wanted to push in this platform is, you know, I've, I've been privileged to sit in front of some amazing instruments and amazing acoustics. I've sat in a mastering chair for 20 plus years. And the saddest thing is it, whatever comes out of there, once we finish the product, it never is going to sound that good again. The artist you know, it never gets to hear it like that in a perfect acoustic environment on, you know, really well-balanced speakers and all of these things. The The whole point behind this platform is you put everything you want into the actual mix itself and it stays there. You can put the final room that you're in. You can put the space and the placement of your virtual sources or your microphone feeds or any of those things. So you control the entire distance, the effect, everything. And, you know, you're not limited to mixing everything on, if we had a, a stage in front of us, we've been mixing where everybody's on the drum riser and a few things are off to the side of the stage, but they sound weird if they're not in the middle. They don't sound as full and, and rich and all those things. With, uh, with our system, we do a very advanced acoustic simulation and things sound just as they would in a room. The drum set sounds wonderful, whether it's on the left side of you or the right side of you. You can move, you can turn, you could do all of these things. All the instruments sound incredible on their own. We've just opened the soundstage to infinite possibilities and direction and distance. And, you know, you really couldn't do any of that stuff with the traditional tools out there. Yeah, and not a defined set of points. Like, we're not mapping to a set of seven points on top and seven in the middle and a subwoofer. We're not defining those points like that. As Paul mentioned, it's continual space, continual motion, not defined places. And when you move a sound with our tool from any point, from any origin to any destination point, the tonal balance of that sound does not change. And if you've ever heard somebody try to work with some of the other systems and move something that has, in particular, decent low, ener low frequency energy in it, it tanks when you when you try to move it around it's 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 really unfortunate 
Yeah, no, they never. It never has the 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 feeling or punch of even what a, a traditional stereo would have. Stereo still sounds better than most of these other formats. We're opening that that door entirely. That it sounds better, and you can put stereo paired to the left left of you, above you, over to the right. You know, the biggest thing is you can also move things in the space, as Jim said, without any you know, consequences in sound. It's not going to have phase cancellation as it moves from one zone to the, to the other. It's completely smooth, it's uniformed, and it's, you know, it's a very advanced simulation, as we say, that it's, uh, it's really high-level detail. And, you know, we're using lots of processing power to make sure it's, uh, it's seamless all the time. Yeah, we're, we're going into a new generation of audio. And look, audio has been kind of the neglected media for the last, let's just say since the dawn of the iPhone, if I just think about it, we went from video of 525 lines to 1080 to 4K. We went up through all these different encoding formats, H.262, 263, 264, etc. And audio is still living inside the 128K MP3, maybe 256 KAAC, both of which are imperfect, and people can hear and feel the difference. So we are happy that people are now finally thinking about audio, but it's why it was the acknowledgement of that that got this company started several years ago as a research project to give audio a chance to catch up as an experience to the tremendous advances that have happened in video over the same time period. We think we've done a great job of bringing it closer. We're happy to see other people paying attention to audio in the space, but let's pick for the future, not do a patent extension on the uh, on the IP that we just happen to have sitting on the shelf. And in that way, I, I feel like it's an indictment of a lot of the audio industry that the approach that they've taken has been, well, we have this patent pool. It's kind of like the pharmaceuticals. The pharmaceutical guys were like, we have a patent on this drug. Oh, let's do the extended release version. We can charge more for it. Doesn't make the medicine more efficacious. It might make it easier to take, but it's still the same molecule. That's the research approach that's been taken by most of the audio industry up to this point. It's not new. It's just 23 channels of the same stuff. That's disappointing. That's not innovation. And that's not the future. Wow, that's a that's a, a really thoughtful um, yet quite um, striking indictment of the way uh, I think all of us have been sold audio experiences as somehow um, connected to a piece of hardware, right? That there's a sort of hardware fetish that you have to put, you know, put in the special niche or something in order to unlock the magic of an audio experience. And I love that you're proposing that we could hear things differently without all of that hardware, that outlay of expense and all that for us consumers. It's it's not just expense. It's also there's an environmental consequence to this as well that we damn well ought to be thoughtful of. Every artist that I know of, with the exception of a couple of people in country who I love and have differing opinions with, but every artist that I'm close with cares about what happens to this planet and cares about resource capacity and cares about energy consumption. So the thing about this platform is we're not asking you to go out and manufacture new speakers and power amplifiers. That's great business for the guys selling or women selling the speakers and power amps. Maybe not so good for the rest of the planet. Maybe not so good 
for the people who live near the wells where the petroleum is exp extracted to make the plastics that are used in the speaker phones. Maybe not so good for the people who live near the rare earth mines that are used for magnets of these things. Maybe not so good for a lot of the planet. But the other thing about this is energy consumption. So one of the things about this platform is we can deliver our immersive experience over the codecs that are already in market. So services don't need to change their back end. But we actually have built and available for deployment additional transmission mechanisms in our own codecs that are much more energy efficient and can significantly reduce the environmental footprint of any audio streaming service, whether they are a music service or music on top of video. They lower bandwidth, they lower storage, they lower energy consumption radically. And that has a huge implication for the environmental footprint of the whole ecosystem. And that's something that I would certainly like to see people paying more thought to. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Paul and Jim, for that huge sort of whirlwind tour of everything behind um, your new uh, audio format. I will make sure we have a bunch of information for listeners in the show notes so they can hear the difference between Immersion Networks versions and a standard stereo version. So we'll link to your demo page in short, Paul and Jim. And we'll also let you know how you can try um, Mixed Cube, which is the cloud platform that Paul and Jim were talking about yourself if you are a creator and want to experiment with spatial audio. So thanks so much for joining me, guys. This was fascinating. And um, I really appreciate all your time and insight. Well, thank you very much for having us. And of course, our best wishes to Dimitri, and we hope that you recover soon. <laughs> They're joking because they, uh, they see my name as Dimitri on our uh, podcasting platform. So um, yeah, anyway, um, <laughs> thanks, everybody. Yep, Take thanks care. Thanks for having us. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Do you have your ticket to the Music Tectonics Conference? I'm planning this event for you, podcast listeners. The Music Tectonics team is organizing keynotes, panels, and networking with music tech innovators, entrepreneurs, investors, and deep thinkers. And I would love to see you there. But time's running out to get a special early bird rate at musictectonics.com. If you lock in your conference ticket before August 3rd, you'll pay just $69. That's a pretty great price to pay for three experiences online, in the universe, and on a carousel by the sea. Mix and match to get a conference experience like no other. One ticket gets you access to online events October 25th through October 27th, and in-person events outdoors by the sea in Los Angeles on November 2nd. That's three mornings online with keynotes, interactive panels, and speed networking on Hopin's video conference, but better, platform, and three afternoons in the metaverse with keynotes, instrument demos, exhibitor booths, and chance meetings in Deggy World, the avatar-based conference campus, no VR headset required. Then, one day in Los Angeles of in-person networking and real-world spaces way beyond the typical conference hotel. Bring that stack of business cards that's been gathering dust. You're going to need them. Don't wait any longer and get your early bird ticket now at musictectonics.com before the price goes up. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We put out new episodes every week. Want more? Find it at musictectonics.com. You can dig deeper into this episode, learn about our annual conference, get the Music Tectonics app, 
and sign up for our newsletter. MusicTectonics.com has it all. Also, look for Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Clubhouse. And connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, on LinkedIn. Peace. You're listening to Music Tectonics.